You are listening to the Equip Podcast. This weekly course seeks to equip our church, and we pray it can help you as well. Check out more resources at rockycreek.church. So tonight we are going to be going through uh, our uh, Systematic Theology 2, looking at our Ecclesiology, the third part in it. That's talking about the role of the church. Uh, next week, I'm going to ask everybody not to come because we're going to be changing to our next time because we're talking about eschatology, which means the study of the end times. So nobody come next week, okay? Just don't even show up because... No, I'm joking. I, I'm joking, okay? We're going to... Um, uh, some of you really love to talk about the end times and discuss it, and I think for all of us, if we're honest, it's made our heads hurt at different times, but we're going to try to be very uh, thorough, uh, very fair, but above all else, you know what we want to be? We want to be biblical, right? We want to be biblical. What does the Bible say? We're going to get around that to make sure we know. And so next week, we'll be looking at that section of Systematic Theology 2 about the end times. But tonight, we're going to talk about this last little bit about what must a church do, right? And so once again, uh, why is this such an important topic? Because I believe unless we understand what Christ has called us to be as a local church, we are going to miss some aspect of who God has called us to be. Uh, I, I can think uh, years ago about someone who told me that they could not find a church in the new city they lived in uh, that was basically that would meet all the criteria for what they were expecting or hoping for. And so they just jumped from church to church to church to church. And then eventually they just said, I'm not going anymore. So now I have church in a park on Sunday by a creek at, just by myself. And I said, that's not a church, that's a quiet time. Okay, and that's all you're doing. They're like, no, I just feel close to God out in nature. And I go, I get that. And I just don't, I said, I understand all of those things that you're saying to me. But still at the heart is that we've got to make sure that we, when we say what is church, what has God called us to do, that we must be a part of it. Because if Christ has called the church his bride, we cannot disregard her. We cannot throw her to the side. We've got to say, okay, what has God called us to be, and what is it, uh, the church actually supposed to be? And when it comes down to it, Jesus expects the local church to do their part in carrying out what we call the great what? The great commission, right? The great commission or parting words that Jesus gave while he was on earth that we're going to talk about. And so our activities, when we come together as the church, when we gather together, should originate from his call on our lives. I was reading a quote the other day uh, by A.W. Tozer, who's one of my favorite theologians who's passed away years ago, who said it this way, that um, you could take the Holy Spirit away from some churches and they can continue doing what 95% of what they do and nobody would tell the difference. Now think about that. What is he saying there? He said that sometimes we just fill up our calendars at our churches with a bunch of activities, but it's not spiritual. It's not godly. It's not God-word. It's just kind of stuff that we do to busy or occupy ourselves, but it's not truly what God has called us to do. And so even what we say, our activities, when we gather together, should originate from His call in our lives from the Great Commission. You have it there in Matthew chapter 28. If you want to turn there, you can. You've got it written on those pages. But actually, I would, if you wouldn't mind, can you go ahead and open up your scriptures to Matthew 28? Because I do think there's an important few verses before it, I want us to look at together. So uh, in Matthew chapter 28, uh, obviously Jesus uh, has lived his 33 years of life on earth. He's had three years of ministry. He has been crucified. On the third day, he rose from the grave victorious. And he appears to the disciples, much to their shock and dismay, right? Uh, and in the sense of like, we, we should have seen this coming. We didn't believe it. But now all of a sudden he's here. What are we supposed to do? And I love what takes place and how Matthew is very, very clear 
about how realistic the shock is of uh, when Christ comes. So in Matthew chapter 28, you see the resurrection, right? Go down to uh, verse number 10. Jesus says to them, he says, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So Jesus is he's initiating these relationships with his disciples after he's been resurrected. Verse 11, While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people this. His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So the guards that were guarding Jesus' tomb, uh, because the fact of the fact that he'd gotten uh, loose or that it, in their mind something had happened, they just said, let's just tell everybody that somebody stole the body. We'll give you this hush money. Be quiet. Don't make a big deal. And it says that story has still been circulated today. And we read that and go, yep, that's pretty accurate, right? Okay, that's pretty, pretty, pretty on there. Um, then verse uh, 16, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee. Even that phrase there says something's wrong, right? It's supposed to be what? It's supposed to be 12 disciples. Who's missing? Judas. Judas is, right? Judas is missing from this, right? They're going to have somebody else to fit in that spot later. But 12 disciples, it should have been Judas. Judas betrays Jesus. When he, his guilt overwhelms him, he goes out, hangs himself, commits suicide, right? So there's this shock and all. So it, it even sh- says in this moment, like it's 11 disciples, when it should have been 12, 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Now listen to this phrase. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Okay. You have seen this man be beaten to the point of death, Nails driven through his hands and his feet, put upon a cross, die, uh, veil in the temple torn in two, earthquake happening, the sky turns dark. You have seen him bandaged and put into a tomb, and now he's standing there before you. And some people are like, I don't know. Not entirely sure that's him. I mean, they might be photoshopping him in here. This might be some kind of camera tricks. I, 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 I mean, can we really be? So some people are like worshiping, and some are back there going, I'm not entirely sure. Now, um, this is one of those moments in the scriptures that I, I feel like I'm constantly saying here, but I think it's important. If you were trying to paint a picture of early church leaders who always got things right, don't include this in this report. Like, why, why, what, what, What's the benefit of telling that some people are seeing the risen Christ and they're still doubting to see if it's true or not? It's showing that while Christ is perfect, his followers are not. That, that should give us hope, right? Y'all ever struggle with doubting something? I, I've struggled with doubting. Got to know you said you're going to do this, but whoo-wee, I'm scared. Is that really going to happen? Can I be convinced that your promises are sure? Am I gonna? And these guys are seeing Jesus right there in front of them. They're like, I'm not sure. Now, you and I have less than that to go off of, right? So when you struggle with your faith, you're, you're, you're in pretty good company here. Here are these disciples that are seeing him, and some are doubting. And then just this next little phrase I think is beautiful to me. It says, and Jesus came and said to them, you go, why is that a big deal? He's still initiating, isn't he? They're at a distance. I don't know what we do with them. He's like, I'll come forward. I'll come close to you. And he says, all authority in heaven and where? And on earth has been given to me. All authority. He's got it all. There's nothing that he's lacking. He is complete sovereign in control. And since he is sovereign and in control, since he has defeated death, 
He then looks at his disciples and says, do what? What's that first verb right there? It is go. Go, therefore, and make what? Disciples of how many nations? All the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them not to memorize, not teaching them to learn, not teaching them to debate, teaching them to observe, apply, live out all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am what? With you always, even to the end of the age. This is a picture of what Christ does. And then it says he basically he just he's gone from them, right? He goes and they're all going, now what do we do? And the angels say, what he said, <laughs> right? <laughs> what are we supposed to do right now? Okay, it's one thing to memorize that, right? But it's another thing to actually do it. A few years ago, uh, I'd used this illustration at, uh, on, a, on a Sunday where um, when I, I talked about one day when I was telling my kids to go out there and help with the yard work, I really am, um, th- this is going to sound weird to you, um, I don't know if it's my personality or it's just based on what I do every day, but I love yard work, okay? I know, I know what's going to happen after this. Some of you are like, you can come over to my house. I will. If I got the time, I will come over to your house. I love yard work. Uh, I love just being outside. I love sweating. I love working hard. And I love at the end of the day, I can say, I did that, <laughs> okay? Because in ministry, sometimes you can work all day long and go, everybody's still a train wreck. You know, it's just like you don't, you don't know if there's any progress. But when I look at the yard, I go, at least for the next week, that looks pretty good, right? I can say, I did that today. And, and it's something, I don't know, it's therapeutic for me. Typically, my best ideas come up on the lawnmower. And now I got these kids who are like, can I cut the grass? I'm like, no, that is my lawnmower. Okay, this is my time. Like, I don't want, some of you are like, can they come over to my house? Yeah, they come over to your house for the right price. They will come over to your house and cut your grass, okay? Um, but no, with, with this, like, I, I just love it. But I, I use the example one time that if I look at my son, Eli, who loves to cut the grass, and he'll come out there, if I'm on the lawnmower, he's like, do you need help? I'm like, yeah, you can get the weed eater. Okay, like that's something he can do, okay? But like, ride more, like, it's just different. But I, I really do enjoy most of it. And if I were to tell my son, Eli, I'd say, Eli, that's what I need you to do. Can you mow the yard for me, son? Can you do that? He's like, got it, Dad. Appreciate it. And I come back an hour later, come outside, grass is still high, there's nothing happened. A lot more happened being cranked. And I said, Eli, what you been doing? You know what, Dad? It meant a lot to me that you told me to mow the yard. So I memorized what you said. Mow the yard. Mow the yard. And I, I just memorized it over and over and over. In fact, um, I put it on a bracelet. Uh, it says mow the yard, Dad. I got it there. So whenever I, I forget what you said to me, I can look down and say mow the yard. In fact, we even actually, we, we designed a t-shirt. We're going to get t-shirts made that says mow the yard. And uh, we just think it's wonderful. In fact, Dad, it was so moving to me. We wrote a song about it. It goes like this. Mow the yard. Mow the yard. My dad says... Mow the yard. It, it meant that much to us, Dad. We, 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 we just we, we wrote a song about it. I was like, anything else you want us to do with it? I don't know. <laughs> maybe mow the yard. Okay, like Maybe you could get on the lawnmower and actually do what I've asked you to do. And why would I say that? Because there's a lot of people who have memorized the Great Commission. They just hadn't done it. They talk about it. They don't do it. They put it in a song. They discuss it. They can say it in this translation or that version right there. But at the end of the day, what does Christ want us to do? Make disciples. That's what he's called us to do. And as a church, 
we can get so caught up in all these different things. So, so let's break down this phrase just for a little bit here tonight to, to think through those things that he gives us in the Great Commission. First and foremost, to start with what is the mission, what we would call commission to the world, when he says, make disciples, not of some of the nations, but how many of them? All nations. Let me ask you a question. Does the United States need disciples made here? Yes. yes. Majorly, right? In fact, some of the issues that we're in right now is because we've got a lot of converts. We don't have a lot of disciples, okay? There's a difference. For people who say, I follow Jesus, I believe in him, or are we discipling them? He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So yes, that means the United States, but that also means that there are places all over the world that have yet to hear the name of Jesus Christ. And do we as a church have a responsibility to people who are literally dying in their sin, spending an eternity in hell away from God, and they have never heard the name of Jesus. If that doesn't rattle us at some level, we got to check our connection here. The fact of the matter is this. I have gone to the places around the world where I have said, I am a follower of Jesus, and they look at me and they say, who is Jesus? And the fact that that's out there, there are actually thousands of people groups, what we would call as unreached people groups, who have yet to even hear the name Christ to be able to speak of what he's done means it has to change the way that we live, think, operate as a local church. Um, we can't go back. I, I, I remember reading a missionary story one time about a group that was reaching um, a group of people. They were trying to minister to them, share the gospel. They built relationships, earned credibility, and then one day they begin to start telling the story of Jesus. And they do it over a few weeks. So come back tomorrow and we'll tell you a little bit more. You know, okay, he's born, then he did this, then he did this. Oh, you think that's cool? Wait, you come back tomorrow. And they're just on it. They're just like, man, this is so awesome. They, they were loving Jesus. And the shock and awe on the day when they learned that Jesus was betrayed and crucified, they were devastated. Absolutely, like mortified, weeping because they just come to love him. They just come to love him. They're like, man, why would they treat Jesus like this? This is unbelievable. And they were overwhelmed by it. And so we'll come back tomorrow. We'll tell you a little bit more about what, you know, what happened. And they come back and tell that he's resurrected. And these people are just going nuts. They're just like, hey, big dad, this is just so awesome. They were just absolutely going crazy. And then they asked this missionary something he wasn't ready to hear. You ready for it? So where is he now? What do you mean? Where is Jesus? He just got him from the dead. Like, I don't know. This happened 2,000 years ago. He's in heaven now. And they said, you mean to tell me that Jesus defeated death 2,000 years ago and we're just now hearing about it? That puts a little weight to it, doesn't it? The message that all of us have, probably most of us have heard for the majority of our lives would be news to other people. In fact, uh, as we talk about the eschatology next week and following about Christ's second coming, I love the quote that says, Half of the world is debating about Christ's second coming when half the world hasn't heard about his first. We've got to go and tell that what Jesus Christ has done. Look at Psalm 96, verse 3. It says, Declare his glory among the what? The nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples, right? And when we, we go to scriptures, um, one thing you need to know, especially when you, when you go to like, when it says about nations, typically we think about geographical nations. There's the United States, there's Russia, there's Ukraine, there's all this kind of stuff. When we really speak about nations, uh, there is uh, a word uh, that really comes from that looks like this, uh, but what it, the word is is ethnos, okay? 
Ethnos is the word where we would get our what? Group is called ethnic people, right? So if you go to certain countries, there may be one country, but there's different people groups in that country, okay? They speak different languages. They have different customs. So when it says this, declare his glory among the nations, it's really declare his glory among all the peoples, all the different types of people, all the different ethnic groups of people. And it doesn't say just his marvelous works among some of the peoples. It says all of the peoples. If God is as great and glorious as we believe him to be, then that does not need to be just, um, just reserved just for a few groups of people. Matthew 24, 14, here, here's how... Uh, what we call as the church to do and what the end times, how they relate together. It says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the what? Whole world as a testimony to how many nations? All nations. And then the what? End will come. So what does that mean? It means that Christ is not going to come back until all nations have the opportunity to at least accept him or reject him. So you want to speed up his coming? then get on a plane and tell somebody about Jesus. That's what this is about. 2 Peter 3, 9 says it this way, The Lord is not slow about his, his promise. His, uh, he's patient towards you, not wishing any to come to, to perish, but for all to come to repentance. What is this saying? The reason why Christ has not come back yet is he's still giving some nations a little bit of extra time to respond to him. And with that, that means that we have to go out and to do something with that. So mission objectives as a local church, what are we called to do? Well, a church ought to partner with local and global mission partners. If it's all nations, that means there's a local side of missions. There's also a global side of missions. I know some churches that do local missions very well. They help out people in their community. They're a presence, they're salt and light. It's awesome, but they never, ever think about people on the other side of the world. Uh, they never think about what's happening to those folks that have not heard the name of Jesus. On the other side, can I be honest with you? I know some churches who do global missions very, very well. They just don't do anything to help their neighbors. Christ has called us to be able to care for all nations, all people, which means this. I love what Acts 1.8 says. Jesus says, Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and you're going to be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. What is that? If you were to picture a map... Jerusalem's the city, Judea's the region, Samaria's people outside that's not exactly like them, and the ends of the earth is everybody else. And so if Jesus were to say that to us today, he would say, Rocky Creek, you're going to go in the power of the Holy Spirit to make disciples in Greenville, in South Carolina, and people throughout the states who aren't like you, and you're going to make it to the ends of the earth. It's not one or the other, it's all of the above, right? It's us saying, what do we got here? How do we start sharing that with other people and, and go along with that. Um, there is a need to be able to meet people right here and also on the other side of the world. Uh, there are people on the other side of the world that are bowing down to statues and worshiping all kinds of false gods right now, and they need to be addressed. Can I also say this? I talked to a church member yesterday who was, uh, was going alongside and actually saw somebody in the middle of the road in Greenville County bowing down to a statue of a bull that was a full-on satanic worshiper. Greenville County. Yesterday. Okay, so I say this to go, uh, does Greenville County need gospel witness and missions? You better believe it. Does it also need it in the other side of the world? You better believe it. And so as a church, like that's what we're, we're called to do. All members of a church ought to invest their lives so that others may come to know Jesus. That's the goal. We want to invest our lives so that people can be made disciples, that they actually get to know Christ and so we want to do what we can so that others may come to know Jesus. 
if you've never had the opportunity to even be intentional with it, I know evangelism and sharing your faith is just what makes most believers into a state of panic. But all Christ is calling us to do is to share how he saved us with somebody else. And so with that, it's how, how can I go and take what he's done and, and share that with somebody else? Uh, with a local church, knowing that it's different generations, it should be a place where all ages are encouraged to pray, all ages are encouraged to give, all ages are encouraged to go for the sake of the gospel. So that means uh, that we want, from our youngest to our oldest in the church, to be committed to the mission of Jesus Christ. Um, I love thinking about uh, if uh, on the first Tuesday of every month we have senior adult luncheons here. They let me in just because I serve the drinks. But other than that, okay, um, senior adult luncheon comes in, and every month they have some type of mission or ministry emphasis where they say, let's collect some stuff together to help impact. And sometimes it's right here in the city, and sometimes it's something that's going to be taken on the other side of the world. It's senior adults saying, hey, we want to be invested in what's going on and being involved in the mission of Jesus Christ. And then we go just a few years back from our senior adults to say, let's say our preschoolers and our kids, right? Um, a few weeks ago, we had a missionary from the International Mission Board that was teaching on Wednesday night to our first through fifth graders speaking about missions. Uh, this guy lives in a very dangerous part of the world, done a lot of dangerous things for the sake of the gospel, came in and shared with our first to fifth graders what he does as a missionary, how they could pray and support him. And these first through fifth graders said, well, before you leave, we want to pray over you and your wife. And I got this picture of about 40 first through fifth graders, their hands on their shoulder, and just saying, we're going to pray for you. And when I found this missionary afterwards, I said, how did everything go tonight? This guy's been serving on the International Mission Board for 30 years, probably been in who knows how many hundreds of churches, except for the first time in his life he'd been prayed over by a bunch of kids. Never happened in his life. He said, I, I will not recover from what just happened in there. He said, I had second graders and fourth graders just praying that God would use us and had their hands on us just praying these sincere prayers because that's never, ever happened. You know why we do that? We want our youngest to get catch a vision for the nations, right? We want our oldest in our church to catch a vision of using their lives to pray, to give, to go, to do whatever it is for the sake of the gospel. We've got plenty of opportunities to engage in the mission of Jesus. Some of the things we do around here at the church, uh, particular ways, is church multiplication, right? Uh, it's not about how big we can get on this corner of Greenville County on Woodruff Road. Uh, we want to be able to multiply what's going on here. Uh, we shared in the 1030 service today, but weren't able to share in all of them. But uh, some of you know Bryce Staggs, who's on our staff here, has been serving over at a church, uh, Cedar Grove in Woodruff. Uh, was down to three senior adult ladies when they found it. And uh, as of next week, Bryce is actually going to be the lead pastor at Woodside Baptist Church on the west end of Greenville that we've been partnering with. Um, and same kind of situation. Beautiful story that's being written there. But basically, there's these people like James is going to be serving over at uh, Cedar Grove and Bryce over at Woodside and all these things. And what's so great is this. Um, at both of these churches, we've had to do something significant. And now at Tigerville as well, that has not happened in a long time. We had to get the baptistries fixed because people were coming to faith in Christ and they hadn't had a baptism in a long time. Cedar Grove had not had a baptism in six years. And some people came to faith in Christ, and they said, we need to baptize them, but the baptistry doesn't work. And we said, that'd be a really good initiative for us to fix and fill baptistries, right? Let's get these things going again. And that's the hope, right? We want to say, what can we do to make disciples, not just of folks here, but of all other places? We also have community outreaches where we're saying, what can we do to reach 
uh, people in our community right now. We do that with partnering with ministries like Miracle Hill. We do that through partnering with ministries like um, Piedmont Women's Center, Project Host, the soup kitchen um, downtown. If you didn't know this, um, my teenage boys were missing from church on Sunday morning a few weeks ago. You know why? Because they were going with the guys in their gospel group to go serve homeless people soup on a Sunday morning. And to be like, you know why? Because we want teenagers saying, how do we get invested right now in the city for stuff? Now, when my kids come back, they have learned some words at the soup kitchen from some of the clients they never knew before, okay? They see certain things they did not expect to see, right? But this is part of them also saying, what do we do to impact other people's lives? We also think about what we call unreached people groups. Once again, there are thousands of people groups around the world that have do not have a gospel witness. Um, we go to the Serer Plora people in Senegal, West Africa. Uh, we're sending a team to Ecuador in a uh, few weeks that uh, is in a very Catholic slash animistic kind of society where a lot of them don't know the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Where we um, we had somebody just return back from some places in Southeast Asia to explore how we can come alongside some missionaries to help support them. Why? Because we want to take the name of Jesus where it has not been named. Now, that is commission of the world, the mission side. Let's talk about ministry commitment to the church. When Jesus says, baptizing them in the name of the what? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, Some of you may have ever seen this, but in some churches they believe... Baptism should be done three times because of that. You baptize the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's a lot of work on the pastor, I'm just saying, okay? But we believe the Trinity is three in one, so it's just one kind of motion here. But this is what, what, what is this about? When you baptize somebody, and we're going to look at it in just a second, it is a public thing. It's not a private thing. It's, it's you in front of people saying, I belong to some people. And you're also doing it in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is doctrinal kind of understanding. So this is saying, I'm coming alongside people who believe the Scriptures, submitting myself to what God is doing among a group of people that creates this type of ministry. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12 says that the role of pastors is to equip the saints for the what? The work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. That means that all of us should be involved in some type of work of ministry. And so my job as a pastor, even though I am employed by this church, my job is not to do all the work of the ministry. You know why? Because there would be a small amount of ministry being done. My job is to equip other people, honestly, to come alongside and do the work of ministry. So my job should be equipping, and other people's job, okay, let me serve in these different capacities. If all of us are serving, that's what it means to be about a commitment to the church. And I love 1 Peter 4.10. says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve who? One One another as good stewards of God's, I love this, varied grace. As we kind of talked about in Nehemiah, some people are gifted to sing, some people are not okay some people are gifted to help and teach and do different things but everybody has a different place to play in varied elements of god's grace and i would just say this some of you know right now you go uh, maybe i can't sing but you go i love teaching kids right you're like some of you were gifted at this i'm looking around the room and some people are like i mean you were gifted at teaching kids you love it it's wonderful some of you would not know how to communicate to a child if you were forced to okay you're just like i don't know what to do like stop it okay like and so with this everybody's got different gifting and so how is it that you should be used to do this so if we think about ministry objectives what does this look like if we go to the baptism part we know that baptism communicates that you belong to jesus in a local church Baptism is kind of this entry point 
uh, into the family of God. Uh, it's not a requirement necessarily to say that you're a Christian. It's not that. But it's just like I always think about baptism, like I think of this wedding band, okay? I just took my wedding band off. Uh, I've had this wedding band for 18 years. I got it once I'd committed to marry Amanda, right? I can take this wedding band off. Am I married? Yeah. I can give this wedding band to Brett. Doesn't mean he's married, right? He can put it on. Doesn't mean he's married to Amanda, right? Doesn't, doesn't change anything about him. So why do I put this on? I put this band on so that other people know that I'm in a relationship, right? I'm committed. I'm unashamed. I belong to somebody, okay? So that's what baptism is. You don't have to have it on, and can you have a relationship with Jesus? Yeah. But what does baptism do? I don't mind anybody who knows I belong to him. I'm unashamed. So I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this symbol so that other people see it. And so you're committing to a local church when it happens. Uh, I'm often asked about this once again. Um, um, somebody asked recently, can I get baptized in private? Can you come to my house and baptize me? The answer is no. Because, number one, it's kind of weird. Number two, um, the whole point of baptism is to be a motivator for other people. Right? Like... Um, some of y'all may know this story, but a few years ago, um, there was a wonderful series of events that took place. One was, there was a senior adult who got saved, got baptized, and that sparked in somebody else who'd been saved for a long time but was fearful of baptism that they need to be baptized. The comment was to me, when I saw his white hair get baptized, I realized that my white hair could get baptized too. And I said, well, that's awesome. I'm, I'm great. Well, why haven't you? I've been a Christian for a long time, for decades. I've just never gotten baptized. Why? I'm scared to death of water. I'm scared to death of drowning. It's always been a fear of mine. So I'm sitting there going like, well, maybe I don't need to work. I was sitting there going like, I'm not going to get into this. We're not going to push this. I'm not going to make a big deal of it. And then they said to me, but I realized that if Jesus went to the cross for me, I can go into the waters for him. I said, okay. I said, here's what I can promise you. I have never lost anybody under that water, okay? I'm going to get you back up, okay? So we talk, calm all the fears. Everything's going good. I walk down the hall. Pastor David comes out, sees the person. I said, hey, going to get baptized. Oh, Pastor Travis is going to hold you down extra long. And now everything I worked for just completely got shot in a moment. Uh, but we calmed everything down. But what was so neat was that day getting to baptize when um, this person said to me, you probably never baptized somebody in their 80s before. I wonder what all these people are going to think. I said, you have no idea how you're going to encourage other people and their stories. Baptism is this wonderful thing going, who cares what, what year you should have been baptized and what your situation should be? Baptism is this, but by the grace of Jesus. I've got no chance. It's that I'm identifying with the, the, the death, burial, the resurrection. Jesus Christ has saved me. I was dead in my sins and transgressions. And I don't mind anybody to know that I am changed because of this. And so it's a wonderful, wonderful picture that you do in front of people because it's a family. And being a part of the family means you do your part for the benefit, guess what, of other people. That's what it means to be a part of the church. So we say, okay, how do we commit ourselves to for the benefit of others? Doing what we can as part of a local church. And to do that allows all of us to say, now that I'm a part of a family, at least means this. In my house growing up, with my single mama and my sister um, that was four years older than me, three of us in our house, when we uh, cooked a meal and ate, there was nobody saying, well, I'm going to go on to my room and do my own thing. When you're a part of this house, you got some chores, right? You know what I'm talking about? You're going to do some stuff. You don't, you don't clean, you don't eat. Something's going to happen, okay? Like, we just knew we all had responsibility. Why? Because we're a part of the family. You don't have to do it for entrance into the family, 
but you do it because you got a seat at the table, right? We all do our part with it. And, and so with this, we're a family, and so each member ought to find an intentional place of service based on his or her spiritual gifts and passions. It's a wonderful, wonderful thought about what could take place if all of us found an intentional place of service based on spiritual gifts, how God has equipped you, gifted you, but also passions that you have. Let me give you an example. Some of you have the gift of teaching, right? Does that mean you can teach anybody anywhere? No. Like, sometimes you're more passionate about certain types of people because of how you were reached, right? So some people are passionate about teaching teenagers. Why? Because they got saved when they were a teenager, right? And they, see, they, they so they go, I can teach, I guess, anywhere, but I'm more passionate about this. Some people go, I love to teach people who are going through a crisis moment situation in life because I know what it's like when people taught me when I was in a crisis moment. So you take your gifts, but then you take your passions. And what happens is to ensure maximum, what I call fruitfulness, we should all prioritize what I call progression of leadership development. What does that mean? You can have gifts. That doesn't mean you know how to use them the best, right? I gave the example years ago that um, one of, well, my, my dear mother-in-law got an iPhone, and she did not know how to use that thing for about the first year of her. Uh, she, she just couldn't figure it out. She's like, I don't understand how to use this thing. It drives me crazy. And literally, literally, my two-and-a-half-year-old son goes, here's how you use it, Nina. It starts opening it up, right? I just say that to go, you can have the gift, but that doesn't mean you know how to use it. And so I'll say this. Um, I believe that God has gifted me in certain ways to communicate biblical truth, right? But that doesn't mean I don't need to work on how I can do it better. You know that every week I do a painful, painful exercise for me? I listen to my sermon every week. And you go, well, it's painful for us. I get it, okay? But let me tell you one more painful than you, having to listen to yourself. You ever listen to yourself talk on a recording? You go, do I sound like that? It's painful. Why do I do it? Because I want to get better. Why? Because I love you people. And I want to do my job to do what I can. So that means there are certain books that I read, certain exercises that I do, so that I don't get stagnant and stop. So for us as a church, you can be gifted at teaching kids, but does that not mean every so often we need to say, here's how you could do it a little bit better. Here's some things you need to think about. That's kind of what our heart is. Um, I've used the example before, but so many times people are just given an opportunity to serve in church, but they're never given the tools to know how to do it. And so as a church, our responsibility is to help come alongside and do what Ephesians 4.12 says, to equip. And a church ought to ensure that they can minister through age-based and need-based ministries. So we look at, okay, there are certain things that kids need to know and that there are certain things that senior adults may need and certain people who are widowed might need this and people who are going through divorce need that. People who are homeless need certain situations. So we look and say, okay, how can we be as a church do all these things to help minister to people at different places and different stages in life? I believe if all did their part, all needs would be met. In a local church, if all did their part, all needs would be met. And nobody in this room would have to serve in seven different areas. You know why? Because we're all serving in one or maybe two of areas that we feel gifted and called and passionate. And I have learned this, that sometimes I have filled a need. The church has said there's a need here, and I have tried to meet it, and I'm miserable. I'm not good at it. And I do it because somebody needed to. And I don't even like it. And then all of a sudden, I'll find something. There's actually somebody who loves that thing that I hate. You know why? Because God wires us differently. Some of you would be scared to death to be able to stand before this microphone right now and teach God. I, I couldn't do that. This is natural to me. 
I've talked to anybody about anything. I, I've always, I've I, I really, for a long time, like, this is natural for me, but sometimes I'm doing things that are not natural for me, and God is going, I've gifted this person to do it. Why are you trying to do it? Not only am I doing it poorly, I'm robbing this person of how they could be used by God to serve the local church. And so we're all using our gifts, right? Then we've got discipleship, commandment for discipleship, where he says, teaching them to, once again, not memorize, not learn, but to observe. And it doesn't say some of the things, but what? Everything I've commanded you or all that I've commanded you. And so with this, 2 Timothy 2.2 says, what you have, so he goes, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust the faithful men who will be able to teach what? Others also. So Paul says, Timothy, I gave it to you. Other people were listening. I expect you to teach somebody else who, guess, will do what? Teach somebody else, right? So, so that, that's the goal. I, I take what I'm learning, give it to you. You give it to somebody who hopefully one day will give it to somebody else. That's what discipleship is. Jesus said it in Luke 6.40. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully, what? Trained will be like his teacher. That is the goal. And so some discipleship objectives, some things to, to think about. Salvation is the starting line, not the finishing line. Do not think about when you receive Christ as if you have finished and you're going nothing else to do. Too, too often do we see somebody come to faith in Christ, get baptized, and we assume that our work is done. I will be honest with you. The work is just getting started. Because Christ has not called us to make converts, he's called us to make disciples. And disciples means we are learning, we are growing. And so, in churches, we oftentimes talk about how many professions of faith. Somebody raises their hand, prays a prayer, fills out a card. How many professions of faith are out there? That's easy to track, but that's not what he's called us to do. If there is a true profession of faith, there should be a true progression of faith. We ought to be growing. We ought to be developing. We ought to be maturing we ought to be sanctified and being discipled. That's what Christ has called us to do. So with that, we have to say, yes, we are excited about evangelism. Yes, we want people to say yes to Christ. Yes, we want people to be converted. But that's not it. That's not the end. Something else has to happen. We need to be a people who prize more than isolated introductory faith. We need people who say more than, I believe in God and everything. I decided to follow Jesus 40 years ago, and I haven't been following him ever since. We need people who say, I said yes to follow Christ, and I'm still after him, right? When Jesus said, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, you just caught the biggest catch of your life. Want to leave those nets and come follow me? You know how you know if they were still following him three years later? If they had actually followed him. If we would have gone back and found Peter, Andrew, James, and John on that same fishing boat, that means they didn't follow him. They just said it, right? The call is to follow Christ. It's not just an introductory faith. It's more than that. And so how do we do that as a church? Well, a personal plan for discipleship helps you have an intentional path to see progress in the areas that matter most. As a church, we really try to help people say, okay, where are you and where do you need to be? And how do we help you get there? So... If you were just saying, well, my plan of growth is I show up on Sunday and whatever you're talking about, that's where I need to grow in. That's awesome. But maybe there's some of you that say, you know what I need help in right now? I need help in controlling my anger, right? So you're like, mm, just, that's, you just got in my mail. Okay, okay, yeah, okay. How's that going to happen unless you get intentional about it? Some of you say, I need to work on reconciliation to a relationship. How's that going to happen unless you're intentional about it? I need to pray more often. 
How's that going to be? How's that going to happen unless you decide I'm, I'm going to work on this? So, do you have some type of plan where you're saying, "Where am I going to grow?" But also, a smaller group helps connect you to people you can encourage and by whom you can be encouraged. Uh, we talk about gospel groups here is kind of the term that we use, but it's a smaller group of people. Today, after the service, one of the people that are in my gospel group came up to me with tears in his eyes and said. You remember a couple weeks ago when I wasn't there and you texted and said, I missed you tonight. Is everything okay? I said it meant more than I can possibly imagine. No, somebody's got eyes on me. That's what we want, right? That's what we want. Just people say, you're not isolated. You're not out there. You got some people that are, that are watching out for you. And then last, there's this last phrase that talks about worship or communion with Jesus, where he says, I will be what? I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. So, um, the end of the age, we think about being in heaven, is going to be this wonderful opportunity to see him face to face. I think we have done people a disservice when we equate that heaven is just one long worship service, okay? I do not think it is just that, okay? I think it's more than that. I think worship is wonderful. I think we're going to sing a lot. I think we're going to celebrate the presence of Jesus. But heaven is not one worship service that lasts for eternity. So anybody today is like, we're 10 minutes over. If that's the way you feel, you're like, I'm going to hate heaven. That, that's not what it is. Not one long worship service. But there is this element that worship's going to be there. But also, Jesus just didn't say, I will be with you when you get to heaven. He goes, I will be with you now, right? So there's this communion. We're walking with Jesus, and there's this aspect of our relationship with him. Jesus said it this way in John 4, 24, that God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in two things, spirit and what? Truth. There's this... The spirit mindset, this, this spiritual connection aspect, but it's also based on truth. A lot of times when I can't understand what Scripture is trying to say, I will take those key words and I'll think the opposite. What would it be like to worship Him in flesh and in lies? That helps me understand what it means to worship in spirit and truth. Worshiping in the flesh means I worship when I feel like it. Worshiping in the flesh worships when all the music's the way I like it to be, right? That's what worshiping in the flesh is. Worshiping in lies is me singing things that I don't believe with my heart. Saying commitments that I don't intend to back up with my life. So to worship him in spirit and in truth is like at the deep soul level, but also based in truth. Romans 12.1, Paul says this way, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living what? Sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual what? Worship. Somebody once told me, they said, the problem with a living sacrifice is that it can continue to crawl off the altar whenever it wants to, okay, right? This is a living sacrifice, but it should be this idea. I don't just offer something, I offer myself. That's what worship should be. And if we think about when we come into worship objectives, what takes place when we worship together as the, the body of Christ? Well, if we think about preaching being from God's uh, revealed word, that preaching should be God's revelation to us, and worship is our what? It's our response to him. So preaching, if it is done correctly, should be a mouthpiece for what God's word says. And we believe that God's word is God's revealed truth to us. It's God's revelation. So God's word, he reveals himself to us, and we do what? We worship and we go, we respond to him. So today in all of our services, we finish talking about Nehemiah and all these people offering up their presence and offering up their service and offering up their, their gifts. That hymn, take my life and let it be, right? Take my intellect and use. Take, take my silver and my gold. Take my hands. Take, God, I want to give what I've got, right? It's this moment. Like we've heard God's word. Now we've got to say something back to him, right? We've got to do this. It's, it's now our, our natural response. 
So the Bible is central when we gather together as the body of Christ to our preaching because it is God's revealed word to encourage an obedient response from us. I would never, ever intend to preach through 73 verses of Nehemiah chapter 7 unless I believe it to be in our best interest to study through the Bible the way that God put it together. And I believe that one of the best ways that we can understand God's Word is by not cherry-picking from every place we want to, but say, what is God's Word? He, he, wrote Nehemiah, he put Nehemiah together, so let's go through it. And once again, I never go to Nehemiah chapter 7. You may disagree with me on this. Like, I thought of the whole sermon. What was the point of it? But for me, I needed to hear those truths from that chapter today. Like, I needed that. And so we, what happens is God reveals his word to us, but it's also to actually have a response. Something should come forth. And so we, we come together, we hear God's word, and then we collectively, we, we come together and we say something back, we, we do something back, but we do it together. A gathered time of worship is when the church comes together to collectively say what we should have been portraying all week long, right? There's just something powerful about... Uh, today to say, take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. To sing that out together, there's, there's, it's deep for me. I don't, I'm just like, I'm sitting there going, ooh, can I say that? Like, take my moments, take my days, take when I'm droggy in the morning, right? Trying to wake up, take when I'm stressed, take when I'm trying to be a good husband and a good father of the house. Like, take even those moments, take those days and let it just be one worship service to you, right? Let it be the soundtrack of my life. And so, What's beautiful is I love to be able to sing that alongside you. I think about years ago when I heard Chris Tomlin, uh, he had written a song called Our God, and I remember I was at the place where they actually, he sang it for the first time. And there's something beautiful about saying it, and if our God is for us, what can stand against us, right? But I always thought about it. It was something I was in a, I was in a stadium that had 60,000 people in it. It was unbelievable. But I thought, I started laughing in the middle of the song going, how pitiful and puny it would have sounded and if my God is for me, what can stand against? I looked around 60,000 people. It was like an army in that room. We're like, and if our God is for us, right? Like, it's not just about me. It's like us. Like, we're a part of something that God's doing. And I'm going, those people are like from a different country. Those are from a different state. Like, what could happen if God does this through us all everywhere that we go? And it's something bigger than just us, right? And so if the goal of worship is to reflect heaven, we must ensure that our differences don't keep us from uniting together. One of the, if we think about in heaven, it says that every tribe, every nation, every tongue is going to be there together and people are going to get a snapshot of it and go, how are all these people who are so different work together, right? It's because what we have in common is a lot more important than what we have different from one another. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, I do not want to be a member or a pastor of a church where everybody is a bunch of white middle-aged males like myself. That'd be boring. That doesn't reflect the image of what heaven is going to be. And so, so honestly, I know that there are certain commonalities that we find comfort from. And you may say, I, I like to be around people who look like me and act like me and kind of some same type of tracks. And I go, I get that. But if heaven's not going to look like that, it kind of forces me to at least evaluate this question. If I pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven means that if heaven is going to be diverse, then don't we want our church to be diverse? Don't we want our ministries to be diverse and not be just like... I, I remember year, a couple years ago, somebody coming to me and said, Travis, 
I'm not of the same ethnicity of you, and I've been told people of the same ethnicity of me that I shouldn't trust a white pastor, but I feel like you're my brother and I trust you and I want to join this church. Is, this, is it okay for me to be? And I'd say, brother, if it's not okay for you to join this church, then I don't have a right to be here either. It's not about this difference or that. It's like, how do we, we, we want to embody the unity and even the diversity that heaven takes place. And so with that, not only do we want to have that type of unity, one thing that is a little bit different, uh, unique, um, in our, our 5 o'clock service t- tonight, there was a small child that was starting to talk back to me in my sermon. You know, kind of stuff. And then there was a little bit of coughing and a little bit of talking and whatnot. And it's just funny. When I'm preaching, I'm trying to keep y'all's attention. Some of y'all are like, you know, just doing this kind of stuff. Like, anybody going to tell? Can I be honest with you? When I hear kids in a sanctuary, I praise God because I've been in churches where they hadn't heard a kid cry in years. You know? So if a kid's in the service with dad and mom, and they're making a couple of noises, I go, that's awesome. I praise God for it. Because even if there's some distractions, and I know sometimes if the kid's about to burn the place down, somebody needs to take that kid out and deal with it, okay? Like, I'm not talking about that, right? But I am saying this. Um, as a church, we have decided to do something that a lot of churches don't do today, and this is not to throw shade on anybody, but a lot of times... Kids are separated from their parents at every aspect of church, and I don't think that's the most healthy thing that can happen for the next generation. If the first five years they're always in the preschool, never connect with their kids, and the first, first through fifth grade they, they go around to a different worship style because uh, they're not going to understand what the preacher's going to talk about and going to get bored or whatnot, and then they get sixth through twelfth grade and they're going to sit with all their friends in the back row and just basically pass notes to each other and get in trouble. What you've just set, decided was this, that out of 936 Sundays that a child has from age zero to age 18, almost zero of them are going to be spent beside their parents. Now what does that do to the next generation? I'll tell you what it does. It teaches kids that to follow God means you have to be away from your family to do it. It teaches kids that you don't need to learn from your, your father or your mother, and it messes something up. I believe as a church that we need all generations present when we come together and worship, and that the best chance that the next generation will learn to worship God is by witnessing parents and mentors who do that passionately. I want to be beside my kids with my Bible open, with my mouth open, I mean, just shouting out the praises of God. I want them to see my hands lifted up and surrender when I need to. I want them to see me embrace people when I see them. I want them to witness what does it mean to be the church and to be a worshiper. And they're not going to get that if they're just separated from people who should be charting the course. I am scared to death what this country is going to look like in a couple of years from now. When we have completely isolated the next generation from their parents. And completely said, go into another room and learn how to follow God from somebody you barely know. Scares me to death. And while there's all kinds of issues, what I get excited about in our church is that when kids actually learn how to worship from their dad and mom, but can also tell you what scares me, that they're learning how to worship from their dad and their mom. Sometimes that's a good thing. And sometimes it's not. If we think about what worship ought to be, there's a lot of styles in here, right? If I were to ask, like, what's your favorite style? Some of y'all like, I like traditional. I like contemporary. I like the upbeat Christian rock. I like the southern gospel. I like this. I like that. I, I get all that. But I'll tell you, I have figured out God's favorite worship style, okay? I'm going to solve all our worship war problems right here. Here it is. God's favorite style of worship is a lifestyle. Where we come together, and we're really not worried about what genre it is, but we use it as a catalyst to live our lives of praise to Him. And so what must the church do? 
obey the Great Commission, being involved in the mission, being involved in the ministry, being involved in discipleship, and making our lives a lifestyle of worship. And to that end, Father, we pray that as a church, we could be who you've called us to be, to make sure we are caught up in the things that you have called us to be a part of, that we would be a church doing our part to fulfill the Great Commission so that other people will come to know you, that all the needs in our church family will be cared through ministry, that we would take seriously the task of discipleship, and we would make worship the soundtrack of our lives until we see you face to face. Lord, help us walk in that presence. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Equip Podcast. Make sure to check out rockycreek.church for complete notes and additional resources. You can also subscribe to this podcast and get weekly courses delivered to you. We hope to equip you for the work of the ministry.